really interesting in our country. We've got um, a variety of rally cries that focus us on remembering. Let me give you a few. If uh, this next picture causes your heart to race just a little bit more, voila, pretty familiar, right? The Alamo. Why, you remember there is a phrase, remember the Alamo. But in case you're new here, let me give you a little bit of the background history. Uh, General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana marched his army from Mexico through inclement weather, snow, mountains. And on February, in February of 1836, they laid siege to this fortress, the Alamo. And for 13 days, they laid siege on it. And almost every single Texian that occupied the Alamo uh, died. Well, that was February 1836. When we move to uh, the climax of the March 6th, when we actually get to April 21st, 1836, so just a few, you know, a few days later, we have a situation where Sam Houston and 800 Texians routed the, uh, Mexi- uh, the Mexican force of about 1,500 soldiers. They happened to catch them taking their siesta in San Jacinto, not too far from Houston, and they were able to basically get them to surrender. And it is said that when the soldiers were fighting, they were saying this rally cry, remember the Alamo. Let me give you another one. Remember Pearl Harbor. December 7th, 1941, the Japanese, with a just a well-singular, carefully planned event, pretty much wiped out our complete naval fleet in the Pacific. December 7th, 1941, as Franklin Delano Roosevelt, president, said the next day, it is a date that will live on in infamy. And there was this rally cry, remember Pearl Harbor. They even had a song that was featured regularly on the radio. And remember Pearl Harbor became kind of the rally cry in World War II. Many of you will remember this event. Remember 9-11. September 11, 2001, four American airliners were hijacked by 19 Muslim terrorists with box cutters and knives. They were successful in flying two of the planes into the World Trade Center, one plane into the Pentagon, and another that went down in a field about 80 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. And we have this rally cry, remember 9-11, because we never want such atrocities ever to take place on American soil again. But when it comes to our faith as Christians, we also have a rally cry. But it's not a rally cry to remember something that was done to us. It is a rally cry to remember something that was done for us. And as we're making our way through the book of 2 Timothy, when you come to verses 8 and 9, you hit upon it. These are such powerful verses. And let's take a look at it, because I want you to see the rally cry of our Christian faith. Chapter 2, verse 8, 2 Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment, as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. These two verses highlight the rally cry of our faith. Now, this is Easter week, and there are going to be lots of invitations going out to lots of different people 
inviting people, even non-believers, to join for an Easter service. And kind of implicit to that, and, and Christians will say this, they say that Jesus Christ will change your life. And I want you to know there's a plenty of people that are going to say, really? How do you know that? How do you really know that Jesus really will transform a life? Well, that's why these two verses are so critically important. They contain within them the rally cry of our faith, but they show us how Jesus really does transform a human life. First thing you see, if you notice in verses 8 and the beginning of verse 9, is that Jesus transforms our lives through his resurrection from the dead. He says, Paul writes, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Very interesting. Jesus is his human name. The eternal son of God enters into humanity. He takes on a human name that was actually given. God actually, the father says, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. His human name is Jesus. Christ, Christos, speaks of Messiah or the anointed one. You see, Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God, and he must be both. He must be fully man in order to identify with humanity. But he must be also fully God to pay the Father's just wrath against sin. In order for him to extend forgiveness and payment for sins to all of humanity... He has to be both fully man and fully God. And it's very interesting. Paul writes, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, who is a descendant of David. You see, God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. God wants all the focus to come upon his son. And the resurrection of Jesus is the central event of all history. And so, beginning very early in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there are all these promises about a coming deliverer. But you notice from the text in verse 8, he highlights that he is, this Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, is a descendant of David. God made an explicit covenant promise with, Dave, with King David and told him, it's called the Davidic covenant, it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, and promised that you will have a son an heir who will reign eternally. A thousand years before Jesus actually makes his appearance, God makes this promise that you will have a son that will reign eternally. And furthermore, just to show you some of the promises that God makes that focus on this Jesus Christ risen from the dead, so you got that he's going to be a son of David. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13 explicitly say that he will reign forever. Made a thousand years prior to his coming. Then... God says that in Micah chapter 5, 2, that there is going to be one who's coming who will be born in Bethlehem. And you find that in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. In order to completely narrow the field down so that no one will miss, God promises in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, written about 700 years before the coming of Christ, that this one who is coming, this anointed one, will be born of a virgin. The field gets really narrow down to one person now, so you won't miss it. But then, like in Isaiah 53, this coming deliverer is promised that he will suffer and he will die for our sins. He literally will bear our iniquities. And in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, it is promised that this one who will be cut off, 
This Messiah, he will come at about, and they can, you can actually do the calculation, and that will occur at about A.D. 33. And then it's also promised, like in Psalm 1611 or Psalm 2, 7, and 8, that this one will rise again. He will literally be resurrected from the dead. And so when you see verse 8 where he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, that is so critically important. God is a promise maker, and he is a promise keeper. He spoke, he has said, I don't want you to miss him, and he has delivered. And to authenticate to the world that indeed, that Jesus truly is the one who pays for our sins, God gave this authenticating miracle. He had Jesus rise from the dead. And that's why the rally cry of our faith is remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And notice what Paul says in verse 8. I don't want you to miss this. He says, according to my gospel. He doesn't say just according to the gospel. You know that you are a believer in Christ when you can say this, according to my gospel. It's kind of like you see a bunch of kids and you could say, there are the kids. But when you say there are my kids, that speaks of ownership. And what Paul is saying, this gospel, it's my gospel. This rally cry is everything to me. It is this promise. It's prophesied in the Old Testament. God has delivered and he's authenticated to the world through the resurrection of Christ. This is the rally cry of our faith. You see, when Jesus rises from the dead, that authenticates to the world that indeed he is the promised deliverer. And when through the resurrection, I mean, think of it just for a minute. All the blessings and benefits that come from trusting in Jesus were forgiven By virtue of the resurrection, Christ can literally dwell in your hearts by faith. His spirit literally can take place in your life. Live there. You're no longer a slave to sin. You've been adopted into the family of the Father. You are eternally secure. There is nothing you can do to lose your salvation because it's been secured by the finished work of Jesus and his resurrection. That is why the rally cry of our faith is Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Don't forget our past our present, and our future are changed because of the resurrection of Christ. And I will make this statement. You know what you believe by which you are willing to suffer and sacrifice for. Did you notice this in verse 9? When he speaks of this gospel, he says, My gospel, verse 9, for which I suffer hardships even to imprisonment as a criminal. You know what you really believe by what you're willing to sacrifice and suffer for. For Paul, there had been all sorts of malignment. He'd been slandered. He'd been beat. He'd been abused. He'd been imprisoned several times. In fact, he is writing from a prison cell at this present time, and he knows he's about to be executed. So when he says, for which I suffer hardships even to imprisonment, Paul says, I know from firsthand basis that following Christ can be difficult. But the reason that I've got hope is because I have life. I have Christ. And you see, Jesus transforms our lives through his, the resurrection of the dead. And when you and I come to a place where we're truly trusting and believing, we're willing to suffer and even sacrifice. That's one of the ways we know that Jesus transforms our lives. He does so through the resurrection of the dead. 
his personal resurrection. And it guarantees that we who believe will one day experience this resurrection in our own lives. We'll die an earthly death, but we'll always be with the Lord. And one day we'll receive a resurrected body like his. Jesus transforms lives, and we know so because of his resurrection from the dead. But I also want to point out something else in this text. Jesus transforms our lives not only from his resurrection from the dead, but through the revelation of his word. You see that in verse 9? He says, For this, this gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment, as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. You can chain me, you can imprison me, but you cannot chain the word of God. And you see, ultimately, the word of God points us to the Son of God. If you want to know the grand theme of Scripture, it is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament shows our need for him. It tells us who God is. It reveals aspects of God's character. Anything from his creator to the one who's the lawgiver, the one who upholds justice, the one who will provide a deliverer, that sin requires a payment. And the New Testament not only highlights the the coming, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, but all the implications. All of the Bible points to Jesus Christ, and that is why the rally cry of our faith is remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And that is what, what, what Jesus wants us to understand. God's word brings revival to our lives because it points to him. Do you remember after his resurrection? It's recorded in Luke chapter 24. He is on a road going to Emmaus. There's two other guys with him. And these two guys, they don't recognize him. Their eyes are prevented from seeing him. And, Jesus, and it said this. And he said to them, Jesus speaking, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I would have loved to have been on that journey. Can you imagine? being with the resurrected Christ and him showing, beginning with the first books of the Bible and the prophets, how these words speak of him and to be there with him in his resurrected state. But that's what the word does. That is why we know that God really transforms us. And he does so through the word and this word of God points to the Son of God. Remember when John was one chapter away from closing his gospel in John chapter 20, Beginning in verse 30, he writes this. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book. There's a lot more that Jesus did, but they're not written. But listen to this. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Everything that you and I need for life, faith, salvation, hope, it's found in the Word. And the Word speaks of Jesus. The question is, will you believe? These things have been written so that you will believe. You see, Jesus transforms our lives through his resurrection and through the giving, the revelation of his Word. There's a, a classic statement found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. When Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, he writes this statement about the Bible. He says, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you 
heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is. What is it? It is the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You believe in Christ? God takes his word and brings about a work in your life. He renews your hope. He, re- he corrects you. He trains you. He shows you the way to go. He renews you. That, even though it seems like the world is spinning out of control, that God is sovereign and that he is good and that you can trust him. All of this comes from the word. That is why whenever you find classic Christianity, the real deal, you always have people believing and trusting in the resurrection of Christ and they are diving into the word. Because it's the word of God that brings transformation in the lives of people. We believe that. I know, like, it's in, it's in vogue now to kind of get away from this book. Like, people even reading Bibles. Nah, not so much. Even pastors preaching passages of Scripture. Now, we'll throw in maybe a couple of Bible verses here and there, but the idea is that i got to keep you entertained. i just got to engage you. i got to pass on some nice truths to keep you happy and keep you going for the next week. But that's not classic Christianity. Classic Christianity is when the Word of God brings transformation, transformation to the lives of his people. Transformation comes from God's revelation. And that's why Paul says, listen, the word of God, you can chain me, but the word of God is not imprisoned. You see, when we read the word, it reminds us of the rally cry of our faith. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. I mean, think of some of the problems that you're in, or some of your worst decisions, or the times that you were absolutely unfaithful. You knew the right thing to do, and you just blatantly did the opposite. You sinned. Was it also the time when you did not remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, nor recall his word? You see, God brings transformation through his revelation. And classic Christianity is focused on Christ and him risen from the dead and from the power of his word that the Spirit uses in the lives of his people. And friends, this was the early church. Really interesting, I've I've never been to Rome, and I'd love to go there, but there are reported about 600 miles of catacombs underneath the city of Rome. They believe that these were nearly all dug and occupied for worship by Christians over a, uh, about three centuries, about 300 years. And Christians who underwent all sorts of persecution had to worship underground, and so they did, underneath Rome. It's just profound imagery. And one of the common inscriptions that they find in these walls and these catacombs where people were buried and the early Christians worshipped is this phrase, The word of God is not bound. Where did they get that? From this text. Do you see it? For the word of God is not imprisoned. See, this word brings revival to our lives. It brings transformation. And in the attempt of the world and the driving nature of Satan is to end our trust and faith in this book, to remove this book, if at all possible, from every sphere. If he can't take it out of the church, he'll get believers to not believe that they ever have to be in it. I mean, if you want some pictures from history, look at like in the 1930s, 
Stalin ordered a purge of all Bibles and all believers. Meaning, if you had one, it was taken and destroyed. If you believed it, you were taken and destroyed like a Magulog of Siberia. You were called an enemy of the state if you believed this book. You look at some of the places around the world where there has been a clampdown on Christians. If you want a classic example of this, you can not only look in some Muslim countries, but you can also look at places like North Korea, where to even be caught with a Bible leads not only to your imprisonment, but to your family and your extended family. Why? Why such hatred for this book? Because this book frees people. It points to the resurrection of Christ. It gives them eternal hope and security. It revives lives, and the world will not have it. And so, friends, you have to understand, God's Word is so critically important to our life because when we're trusting in the resurrection of Christ and His revealed Word, God brings transformation. I heard this crazy story about this uh, husband and wife. The husband had been very ill, and uh, they'd done some tests, and they're trying to figure out what's wrong with him, and they had this follow-up appointment with the doctor to find out, you know, what, what can be done. But the husband was too sick to go, so just the wife went to the appointment. And the doctor said, you know, your husband's sick, but I think we can make him well. In fact, it's pretty simple. I think all he really needs is this. I, he needs for you to make him like a really good breakfast in the morning. Um, he's going to need a real, real hearty, savory lunch. And then a, a really good dinner. Uh, that evening meal, that supper, if you do that for about two weeks, I think he's going to do just fine. So the wife heard it, and she comes home, and there's her husband sitting there, and he goes, oh, well, what did the doctor say? And the wife said, well, you're going to die. I just can't do it. Yeah. Now, that's hopefully not true, and I hope I didn't give him any good ideas or anything like that, but... Uh, it, it highlights that good food is needed for good health. I want you to know something. Your spiritual life, it needs spiritual food. Do you believe that? Do you know that the Word of God has a role in your well-being? It always points you to Jesus and it revives your heart. Jesus said this, listen. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You need food for life. That's what Jesus said. He says, I'm providing it for you. At great expense, this word has been given to you. And so this word of God, what it does is it points us to the rally cry of our faith. These are such precious words, friends. I never want you to forget them. In fact, the Greek tense tells you to always to remember, keep as an ongoing pattern, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. So I'd just like to ask you, how are you responding to the rally cry of Christianity? Honestly, where are you at? What if you're here, maybe you've been coming for some time, and you are presently, you're refusing, you're rejecting. You're like, you know what, I get it. I, you know, I believe, obviously, you can't deny that Jesus Christ came to the world. Yes, I get that. I, I believe that he actually rose from the dead. I mean, there's a lot of convincing proof, okay? I mean, he appeared to people compared to over 500 others. I'm not necessarily denying that, but I will not believe. Now, all you nice church people, that's great. If you want to believe in Jesus, and that's great if it works for you, but I 
I am not going to believe. Let me uh, tell you a, a true story. In 1829, there were two men, one by the name of George Wilson, the other by the name of James Porter. In 1829, they robbed a mail carrier, and they were subsequently captured. They were put on trial, and they were convicted. And to help you understand a little bit what justice looked like in the United States in 1830, when they had their trial in May of 1830, they were found guilty, and the penalty they were to be executed by hanging. The date was set for July 2nd. And when July 2nd of 1830 occurred, well, actually, James Porter was hung and died. But George Wilson was not. George Wilson had friends who had friends who knew the president, President Andrew Jackson. And they petitioned the president to issue a pardon to George Wilson. And Andrew Jackson, the president of the United States, gave George Wilson a pardon. Now, he was pardoned so he wouldn't have to be executed, but for some of the other crimes that he had committed, there was still the penalty of 20 years in prison. But uh, he was given this pardon by the President of the United States. But what makes this so absolutely mind-boggling is that George Wilson, despite the pardon given by the President, rejected it. Thanks, but no thanks. Nothing like this had ever occurred before. Not knowing what to do, the U.S. Supreme Court stepped in, and they determined this. Quote, the court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. They go on to say it is a grant to him. It is his property, and he may accept it or not as he pleases. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote this, quote, a pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws. But he went on to write, but delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and we have no power in a court to force it on him. So George Wilson, you know what happened? He rejected, and they hung him. Now, let's say that you're here and you're rejecting this rally cry of Christianity, of our faith, this this resurrection of Jesus, and to believe in him, this descendant of David. Let's hypothetically say that you're right. That means that uh, when we're dead, we're dead. I will tell you this, that I have never met a Christian who has followed and believed in Jesus who has regretted it and said, oh, terrible. I've never met one. But if you're right, we're dead, we're dead. On the other hand, though, what if you are wrong? What if indeed Jesus really did rise from the dead? He really does provide salvation and forgiveness. If you reject Jesus Christ risen from the dead, do you know Do you know that you then will pay pay the penalty for your sin eternally? You will face the condemnation that Jesus accepted in your place. And he said, I won't have it. Despite the fact that people told me, I heard about it, I read about it, people are praying for me, pleading with me, I will not have it. Then you will face the penalty of rejecting Christ. 
Now, there are some people that are going, you know, I'll tell you what. I really kind of want to do everything on my own, but when it gets time to my end, and I know when that time is going to come, that's what you think, then I'm going to believe, right? Well, that's, that's making some radical assumptions, like you will have time before you die. They're not a, there are not a lot of deathbed conversions. The scripture actually records one. You know, when Jesus was actually being crucified, there were two prisoners on either side. One of them went from blaspheming and belittling Jesus to believing him while he was on the cross. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So there's, there's one. Uh, in my life, I've only witnessed one. There was a pastor friend of mine. Uh, he called me on a Saturday. I was at my kid's soccer game. Uh, there was a person in the church. She said that her dad is about to die. She shared the gospel. She came to Christ late in life. She shared the gospel with him many times. Dad has nothing to do with it. And she, said, he, she asked if he knew of anyone that would go and share the gospel one more time with him. So in between soccer games, I went. And sharing the gospel, this man believed in Christ. And he died a few days later. But I would say that that's the exception, not the rule. So friends, you and I, we can't pay for our sins. You and I were guilty. We're all common. We're all wayward. We're all trying to live life apart from God. And yet, God provides forgiveness and salvation. There are some people that think that, you know, I've got to earn it. Somehow, I've got to earn God's favor. I've, I've done the bad things. I'll pay for it. That's how life works. There was a, a movie that came out in 2009 called Get Low. It had one of my favorite actors in it, Robert Duvall. There he is, right there. Uh, actually, this is just a little side story. I was in... Uh, Austin at the Salt Lake barbecue place with a couple of California pastors one day. And Robert Duvall walked in and my two California pastors recognized him immediately. Like, there's Robert Duvall. Like, what? There he was right there. He does exist. And so I love Robert Duvall. It was really kind of cool. This, I had to see this movie simply because he's in it. And it's a very interesting movie because in this movie, that's about this 1930 uh, Tennessee hermit by the name of Felix Bush. And Felix Bush... Uh, in this movie, he decides that he wants to actually see and purchase his own funeral. And he, uh, Felix Bush has lived his life as a hermit. And it's all because he thinks that he can have a self-atonement project to pay off his sin. Now, you find out in the movie that his sin was that he had an adulterous relationship with another man's wife. This husband found out, and he killed his wife. And so Felix Bush spent the next 40 years depriving himself of all happiness, didn't get married, no children, just tried to pay for his sins. So he goes, after 40 years, to go find a pastor to do his funeral. And so he approaches this Reverend Gus Horton, and he says, you know, it's time for me to get low. And the pastor's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I want my funeral. And, I, and he's like, well, your funeral for me? Yeah, I want you to do it. And like, then Felix Bush says, hey, so what will you say about me? I'm like, well, I've heard stories. He's like, what stories? Well, you know, people talk, but my mama told me that gossip is really like the devil's radio. But then this is what the pastor says, and he tells Felix Bush this. What matters, though, is that when you come to the end of your life, that you're ready for the next one. Now, have you made peace with God, sir? And Felix says, I've paid this pastor disagrees, and with great clarity, this is what he says. Mr. Bush, you can't buy forgiveness. It's free. 
but you do have to ask for it. You can't buy it. It's free. But you've got to accept it. So the question is, what are you doing with Jesus? Have you come to a place where you're trusting him, Christ, and Christ alone? Friends, the reason that Christians rejoice in Jesus, he is everything to us. He is forgiveness and he's life. And that is why, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, it's the rally cry of our life. Remember what Jesus said, John 11, 25 and 26? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he says, do you believe this? Friends, this is the crux of the matter. This is why this week is so critically important. This is the opportunity for the world to come face to face with the reality that Jesus Christ is indeed risen from the dead. Last Sunday, it was in the evening, um, I went to the grocery store, picked up some groceries, got to get through the week, and I, was, I saw a, a guy, he's in our business community, and I've built a relationship with him, and I've talked with him on several occasions, and I invited him to our Easter services next Sunday. I said, hey, we got one at 9, one, one at 10.45, love to have you join us. And uh, he got back to me and said, well, I'm, uh, I'm actually going to be going to this church. He named a mainline uh, denomination that apparently he affiliates with. And so I'm, I'm loading up my groceries in my back of my car in the trunk. And, and he comes up to me in the parking lot. And he said, hey, Grant, um, I want you to know that a couple years ago, I actually had a meeting with a pastor and he says, I'm not going to tell you this guy's name. But this pastor said, I hate Easter. <laughs> and you, you can tell this is, like, this is pretty serious with this guy. And he says, you know, and to use his words, in the Christian religion, Easter is the most important event. It's even more important than Christmas. I said, that's right. The resurrection changes everything. And he went on to tell me about his grown-up daughter, and she's got some pretty serious problems. He wanted me to pray for her. But it was really interesting. This guy, he's thinking pretty clearly and a lot about the resurrection. He, he sees it's wrong when a Christian, especially like a pastor, says, I hate Easter. Actually, friends, remembering Jesus Christ risen from the dead, that is the rally cry of our faith. It is the ultimate joy. And so, you know, we've been talking about this, each one reach one. Friends, there are people in your life that are just waiting for an invitation. They need to know and believe in Christ. And friends, this is our week to do just that. You see, Jesus Christ really transforms our lives when we remember that he is risen from the dead. And so I just give you this challenge. We're praying and asking that as you walk out these doors, that you will be revived and renewed in your faith, that there will be a boldness and a confidence and a joy in knowing the risen Lord, that you would actually engage people with a conversation and at least invite them to hear this Easter about Jesus, risen from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, I come with my friends, and we thank you for your word, this rally cry of our faith, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And for someone who has come here today who's never trusted in Jesus, maybe they've been here for a while, 
And now you've got their full attention, and they believe. Would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself. I believe Jesus died for my sins, and I trust in him now. Lord, lead me and guide me. And Lord, for all of us, may we have just a renewal in our faith, a passion for knowing and loving Christ. And would you give us the ability to have confidence, to walk by faith and not fear, to engage those who need to hear and the lost with the life-transforming truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. We ask this as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.